This is the Education Gadfly Show. <laughs> president of the Porter Institute. Well, okay, and I understand. You right thought we were trying to create a meritocracy. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, John Bailey. John, welcome back to the show. It's so good to be back with you. Yeah, John is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, among many other hats that he wears. He is also the author of what has become one of my favorite daily reads, a daily look at all things COVID-related. What's the name of this? <laughs> like, yeah, th- there's a funny story behind this. This used to be a Slack channel and then just made it into a the daily COVID policy update, which is not a very sexy title, but John- like... You yeah. need to put it on Substack. You could be making serious <laughs> coin off of it. But listeners, subscribe if you don't already. Is it easy to can you even find it? I mean, again, I haven't really promoted it much. It goes to like a small group of people. If people are interested, just email me. Google John Bailey at LinkedIn and I'll add you to the list. There we go. Very good. It's like, what's that new audio platform that you have to get invited to? Listen Clubhouse. To? Clubhouse. Yeah, I'll invite you to Clubhouse, Mike. We should do a Clubhouse sometime. All right. It's annoying to me, though. Why do we have to have, make it exclusive? Because it creates demand. It's like, ah, it's a supply-demand thing. And although I do, I do sometimes think exclusivity is good. I'm the one who thinks that, for example, career tech schools should all be selective. But I digress. John, we are here to talk to you about this fall. Your job today is in soothing tones to tell us that everything's <laughs> going to be fine, that schools are going to reopen, they're going to stay open, it's going to be back to, quote, normal, that there's nothing to worry about However, I will say that your daily email lately has been talking quite a bit about the Delta variant and is making me a little nervous. Let's do all this on Ed Reform Update. All right, John, so tell us the truth here. Are schools going to open this fall and are they going to stay open? Yeah, I think there's there's two truths here. I mean, schools are going to reopen mostly in person for the vast majority of kids in the vast majority of districts across the country. So that's that's the good news. That's better than where we were this time last year. The other truth, which is a little bit of the dark cloud uh, on the horizon, is that there's going to be, I still think, some pretty massive disruptions uh, to learning over this next year. That's coming from two different things. One is this new Delta variant that is more transmissible. It means that it spreads easier and faster than previous variants uh, of the virus. But second, it goes through the path of least resistance, the way all viruses do. And that tends to be, in this case, uh, people who are not vaccinated. And that is, uh, in the case of schools, most kids. We only have 25% of kids aged 12 to 15 that have received a vaccine, and only 37% of kids uh, 16 to 18 are fully vaccinated. That's massive sort of gaps that the virus can take advantage of. And and 0% of kids 5 to 11. Right, yeah. The vaccine won't be approved for that age group until probably late fall, possibly even early winter. We're seeing this in a real time in the United Kingdom right now, which is that if a, a, a kid catches the virus, he's asymptomatic, he shows up at school, the COVID test catches that, that triggers a bunch of other actions in terms of quarantining, not just that student, but a lot of the students and the children that that student was in contact with. And so all of a sudden, one student triggers the quarantining of 20 or 30 kids. And then in the United Kingdom, what we saw is back in June, that type of quarantining was uh, leading to about 225,000 kids learning remotely. 
that number soared to 800,000 this week. And so you could imagine, uh, again, in these low vaccinated areas with these low vaccinated populations, including kids, the Delta variant really creating a lot of trouble for, uh, for schools uh, this fall. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, so you're not saying that schools are necessarily going to close back down again, though. You can imagine in some deep blue places that certainly could happen, right? But maybe this quarantining, is it excessive? I mean, are, are, do we need to rethink the quarantining? Like, I mean, in the in part of the issue here is that, you know, kids can catch this virus and most of them will be fine. You know, that it's very minor. It's still the case for this variant, right? So like, should we worry about cases or is the worry has to be more about hospitalizations, that sort of thing? Well, there's a couple different things. We're still trying to understand whether the Delta variant is creates more severe disease for, for kids. Uh, there's just some reports coming out of Mississippi of some students, uh, kids, young kids who had been affected and are actually in the hospital and in, in, in ICU on ventilation. So again, it's not a huge number but it's more than what we've seen in sort of in the past. And that's something that, again, the science is trying to get a little bit better clarity on. Real quick, why are only a quarter of kids 12 to 15 vaccinated? We're swimming in vaccines at this point, right? Well, I'm not swimming in the vaccine. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. For a vaccine, it's like freely available. There's two things here. One is we have so very little research as to why parents may be hesitant to getting their kids vaccinated. There's only been about four or five different sort of large scale studies that have looked at this. What a lot of them are surfacing is that some of the messaging that we've been using for the last year of that Mike just just mentioned that this is a virus that disproportionately sort of impacts older populations, not younger, that they get the virus, they asymptomatic, they don't have a lot of severe. So all of a sudden that creates like a, a bit of a, a dilemma for a parent. Because like vaccinations for us, super clear the value proposition there it protects us. It keeps us from being hospitalized and from death. What's the value proposition for a, a teen or for a younger student who is not facing uh, those type of severe health consequences? And it's creating like a moment of hesitancy and pause amongst a lot of parents. And also, we just haven't seen the coordinated outreach of a campaign to parents the way that we did to adults. And uh, I think we're we're struggling with that. No, the third, the last thing too is. We're coming up on the deadline where if you think you need five weeks to get from first dose to fully vaccinated, that means to be fully vaccinated for the new school year, kids need to be getting vaccinated like right now. And so th this could be uh, a little bit of the high watermark for back to school until, you know, like, as it keeps unfolding. No, look, I agree, David. I mean, it's really hard to understand and it's frustrating and makes me wonder the country as a whole, we're more at like 60 or 70%, right? Depending on the state, although surely that's skewed by all these much older adults. I mean, you think about parents of teenagers. Okay. They're what? Mostly in their late thirties, forties, early fifties. It'd be interesting to see what those numbers are like. It still seems like there must, there must be parents out there who themselves have gotten the vaccine and they have not gotten it for their kid. And, mm -hmm. and that part, I just don't get it. I mean, I don't know, John, I'm thinking about sneaking my 11 and a half year old in, try to get a vaccine to see if I can fake out CVS somehow to give them the jab. You know, I mean, I want my kids vaccinated. It is really perplexing. And, and it, look, I mean, it's not as bad for the kids, but you're talking about a, a 17 year old, a 16 year old. It's worse for them, we think, than it is for a seven year old. So, and even if you, well, and even if you don't die, there's long COVID. I mean, right. you don't understand very well, but it's a very real thing and it's right. brain damage for your kid. 
Well, I mean, you know, part of this comes down to how people just evaluate risk. And if they feel like the vaccine is riskier than actually getting COVID, then they decide to run the risk of getting COVID versus the vaccine. And for a lot of us, the risk is is flipped. And so that's why it makes the, the vaccine, you know, so salient for the, those decisions. But I am worried, like, you know, to Mike's point, it is about 56, 60% of the country is fully vaccinated, but that's masking a lot of variants. Like if you go to some of the Southern states, it's below 30%. In Idaho, for the teenagers, it's less than 1% of teenagers in Idaho. And here, like you have some governors that just really aren't stepping up and, and helping to sort of push and promote the vaccine and its benefits. And so that's creating, you know, huge vulnerabilities, I think, for a lot of the population. All right. So a couple more questions, John. I mean, quarantining, how should we think about that? Do we need to do what the UK is doing or are we sometimes being overly aggressive on quarantining? Yeah, I mean, this, <clears throat> another another area of disappointment, the CDC came out with revised guidance for schools on Friday. And I think a lot of us were hoping to get some better clarification on, you know, based on the last year, what should quarantining look like uh, and isolating students look like going forward? And there, the, the CDC really didn't update guidance and really punted all the decisions to the local level. And so you have a lot of school systems now struggling with that question. And I think there's alternatives to that. There's alternatives, Mike, to your point of like, if you know those 30 kids that are in a class, maybe you just start doing rapid tests with them every single day, as opposed to randomly to, to see if you're you're catching it. But I think it is a, an opportunity to sort of revisit whether or not a single case should quarantine a whole class for 14 days. But we really needed the CDC to give some thoughts and some guidance there. And unfortunately, we didn't get yeah. it. Or how about this, at least for the middle schoolers and high schoolers, if you're, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine, right? That'd be a good rule. That'd be a good incentive to say, yeah. parents, want your kids at school, get them vaccinated yeah. because otherwise <clears throat> they may end up quarantined and they're going to be back at home and they're going to be back, you know, doing Zoom school all over again. How about nobody walks in the school building door unless they're vaccinated, Mike? Yeah. Well, in, in your Bluetopia date, you can maybe... You mean reality? That. And that can't be the truth for elementary school students because they're not allowed to get, get that. that. I get that. And the, the mandates, I think, are going to be really difficult. Like we, we saw, even before you got to vaccines, like one of the big flare-ups uh, over the last year has been mandated mask policies. And yep. that has prompted like outrage at school board meetings and protests if that type of energy and protests were getting oriented around mandating masks, which, which have proven incredibly effective at slowing the spread of the virus, then you can only imagine some of the pushback and protests that would generate from mandating the vaccine in yeah. some sort of way. It puts schools in a very yeah. awkward position. And then the last thing is, you know, I, I noticed in Chicago, I think it was that the unions wanted some kind of metric on, you know, we'll only come back to school if a certain percentage of kids are vaccinated. You know, again, we just talked about incentives to get people to get vaccinated. At the same time, the teachers are protected. They are vaccinated. They are fine. We do not need any reasons to keep our schools closed, especially those serving poor and minority kids, right? No. Well, again, this feels very similar to last year with the unions, which is the unions all saying, yes, we want to reopen schools. But then their criteria for safely reopen was so high and so far yeah. and above and beyond what the CDC was recommending. And here it's deja vu again, that um, we have experiences, we have this just amazing amounts of trove of research. It shows you can safely reopen schools. We have the Chicago's teachers union saying, no, we want 80% of kids vaccinated by October. 
And like, there's no science behind that. That's not recommended by the CDC. There's no sort of thresholds. That's higher than even the most agreed upon herd immunity threshold of 70% for, for a community. So where that comes from, it just feels like it's stalling tactics and, and just another way for uh, the unions to close schools again for the, the fall. All right, John, you gave us the truth. I don't think you necessarily <laughs> gave us a lot of, uh, I don't know, you made me, I'm more worried now than ever. I don't know. I, I, well, like I, I'm well, worried that there's still going to be a whole lot of kids doing Zoom school for a significant portion of the year if, if we don't change some of these policies and practices. Yeah. No, I can imagine the pushback, but I don't want to. I want to have this conversation. This is getting ridiculous. We're going to lose an entire generation of kids because we're too stupid to get vaccinated. Right. And because we're relying on the unions to decide whether we're going to have school or not. Yeah. You know, we were just talking before we went on live, like, you know, there's this sort of distraction with a bunch of other things right now. But really, there is a tragedy that is slowly unfolding right before us. Because we know the kids that miss a little bit of school and fall a little bit behind, that snowballs. And it has effects on their education attainment, which has impacts on their chances for good jobs, for uh, life-sustaining sort of wages, and just other health effects later we're seeing a slow motion train wreck in front of us for a whole generation of kids. That again, will not be equally felt because some, some kids were going back to in-person learning, you know, this time last year, but we have, we have in some States kids that have been shut out for 18 months. And again, looking at some potential disruptions uh, in the, the, the weeks ahead here. All right, John. Hey, thanks. Sobering news, but important <laughs> nonetheless. Again, John Bailey at the American Enterprise Institute. Always a pleasure having you on, John. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Olivia, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. We've got Fordham's Olivia Piontek here filling in for Amber, who is on a well-deserved vacation. And Olivia, it's been a little while since you've done the Research Minute, but you are no newbie that this is definitely something you've done at least two other times before. Right. So often, in fact, that we threatened to call it Olivia's Research Minute. Oh, <laughs> no, Amber's going to listen to this. She's a professional that. young person. Whenever we're like, what's the podcast? She'll be like, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, can I get some kudos here from Gen Z and, and millennials here that we have been doing this podcast for 15 years. We were so ahead of the curve on this one, huh? Now we just got to get on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> look, it, you, you come up with a good dance idea for us. I'm there. And you, you know, <laughs> I, don't know I need a lot of encouragement. David, were you in the last dance video or did you somehow weasel your way out of that? Uh, weren't we here to talk about research, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> we are, we are. All right, Olivia, what do you have for us this week? Today we're talking about career and technical education. This is a study by Sean Doherty, Eric Brunner, and Stephen L. Ross. The paper is titled The Effects of Career and Technical Education, Evidence from the Connecticut Technical High School System. This study is a little bit different than others because it's the first quasi-experimental study that examines the impacts of attending a CTE high school program that's being offered at scale. And it involves every single one of the schools in the program, whereas previous studies had relied on volunteer schools. So it's a little bit more robust. And like I said, this study focuses on Connecticut Technical High School System, or CTHSS for short. It consists of 16 high schools, 11,000 students attend these schools per year, and that's about 7% of all high school students in the state. So that's pretty significant. These schools have higher per pupil spending, lower student teacher ratios, and better peer attributes than the high schools statewide. 
it is an admissions-based process, and these applications are based on eighth grade test scores, GPA, attendance in middle schools, extracurricular activities, and written statements. Okay, and then for the study itself, they used a lot of data. So the first set um, are all the application data for eighth graders who applied to the program from 2006 to 2013. And then these data are matched to the Department of Education's longitudinal data system. And all that includes information on demographics, FRL status, standardized test scores prior and during high school, attendance, et cetera. And then these data are matched to the National Student Clearinghouse data to collect information on college enrollment, attendance, um, number of semesters um, attended and when. And then all of that is connected to the Connecticut State Department of Labor data, and that'll include industry participation, earnings, et cetera. For this study, the sample was less female, more African-American, more Hispanic, and more low income than the state at large. And standardized test scores were a little bit below the statewide average for students in this program. Notably, though, although students um, that attend these high schools are from lower income families and have lower test scores on average, the students that are being sent from the main sending high schools in the five districts that are low income, um, they generally have higher test scores and higher income. So that kind of suggests that the program curates higher performing students in general. This study uses fuzzy regression discontinuity that uses the application scores as the cut score. That's pretty standard. And then there are separate models used for males and females, simply because men and women have very different um, CTE program participation habits or patterns. Men are more likely to participate in construction, manufacturing, et cetera. And women are more likely to be in health services and tourism. So for the findings, writ large, there were no effects for women. So women were kind of excluded from the remainder of the study because the estimates were small and statistically insignificant. Uh, But there were a lot of really strong outcomes for men. So attending these schools increased their high school graduation rate by 10 percentage points. It reduced the number of semesters they were enrolled in college by about half a semester. And they also saw way higher earnings than their counterfactual averages. They saw 44% higher annual earnings, which is huge. And these effects were pretty consistent up until students were 23. At that point, earnings kind of leveled off. And researchers hypothesize that this is because at this older age range, students are more likely to take some post-secondary courses. So their time spent in college will obviously take them out of the labor market. They also found evidence that the CTHSS schools were better schools and that attendance was generally higher. Standardized test scores increased the longer students progressed through the program. Finally, some of the counterfactual schools do, so the non-CTHSS schools do provide CTE courses, but for the students that go through these courses, they don't see major impacts on their earnings or labor market participation after graduation, opposed to students who did attend the CTHSS schools. Interestingly, there was no indication that race or um, free or reduced price lunch status affected any of these outcomes. So they seem to be pretty effective across those characteristics, just not for women. And then finally, the authors wanted to note that it cost about $13,000 to educate each student per year in the schools. It's 2000 more than this per people state average, 4,000 more than the student's counterfactual school average, but they hypothesize that this was worth it given the major earnings advantage for the students in these schools, for the men, noted. For the men, 
All right. <laughs> Fascinating, Olivia. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I mean, first of all, good, good news on the male side, but, but the, the gender gap here is, is fascinating. That seems to be the mm-hmm. big story. Uh, David, what, what do you take of that? I don't know what to make of it, Mike. Is CTE good for boys or is general education bad for boys? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, the old pattern used to be I mean, that, that when people try to explain how do we, why is it that 60% of so many college campuses now are female, you know, the argument for a long time has been, well, for some of the occupations that are traditionally male occupations, you can still make a decent living without a higher education degree, you know, and so you're going to go do construction or you're going to do some, you know, oil rigging or stuff like that. You can still make good money uh, without the college degree. The professions that are, tend to be historically, you know, stereotypically more female, like healthcare, being a nurse, that sort of thing you need some kind of higher education training. And so that explains it, right? And of course, the other thing is just that boys are terrible at higher education, right? I mean, they don't, you know, they, they stop, right? less likely to have the academic skills, less likely to have the social emotional skills it takes to, you know, persevere through college courses and the like. I don't like where you're going with this, Petrilli. Well, I'm just saying, so I mean, <laughs> this question, we say, should, we've got limited slots at schools like these in Connecticut, which, by the way, I love it that they're separate schools. They're not trying to do it at just their traditional schools. They're selective in some degree, but it raises a question. Should, should these just be all boy schools? Why, why are we wasting these slots on those girls if they're not benefiting from it? Wow, that's quite the statement. Okay, but I do. President of the foreign Institute. Well, okay. And I understand. I thought, here I thought we were trying to create a meritocracy, and you're telling me. Well, I know. Well, look, you know, I understand Title IX, yada, yada, yada. But look, it's interesting. You know, I mean, the other question would be, can we figure out a way to make the CTE programs more effective for young women? And I don't know. I don't know how to do that. But but hey, it's working for boys. So, you know, we should figure out how to get more boys into these programs. Right. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Olivia? I have a couple of questions, honestly, from the study, because they're saying that the earnings gains were only explained one third of the way by industry differences. So I'm just not really sure if boys are participating in, you know, male dominated industries, why would industry not explain the effects for boys more? I think it has something to do more with, I don't know, like the general features of the program. It's stable cohorts, stable teachers, you're working with peers, it seems to be more of an integrated holistic experience, which might be better for high school boys than a regular high school. But I do wonder, are these girls more likely to still go to higher education right after? Mm, That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that might be the case, you know, then they're not earning money, right? I mean, so it's, you're not going to, maybe down the road, if they actually are more likely to complete college. I mean, it's interesting that they dropped them from the study. I don't know uh, at what point they decided to do that, but it's possible that this got them momentum that led them to get those, you know, college degrees or at least industry certificates quicker and got them into the labor market. But yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if if these boys were, had their hearts set on going into the workforce at 18, no matter what, and either they were going to go into the workforce with you know, nothing but a high school transcript or going to the workforce now with some actual skills uh, and maybe an industry credential. Yeah, it's not hard to understand why that would be better for them, at least in the short term. I do want to defend the study really quickly. They didn't drop the the female sample. They ran all of the tests for male and female and then just found, you know, consistently insignificant results for women. 
All right. But that must mean that then these girls were not less, you know, didn't end up taking less college, get less college credit. So they probably just looked very similar. They were, you know, they, they looked the same as the girls that didn't go to the CTE school. Yeah. And, and you know, we're still at a place where something like 65% of kids go straight into higher education out mm-hmm. of high school on average. Look, again, so little is going right for boys, especially boys from lower socioeconomic uh, sectors, both, you know, white, black, Hispanic, you name it. Uh, something that's working, and this sounds like it's working, is, is well worth celebrating. So, woohoo! <laughs> All right, Olivia, thank you so much for filling in. We'll, we'll run this idea of uh, Amber and Olivia's research <laughs> by Amber when she gets back. <laughs> right. Thank you for All having right. me. That is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.